Welcome to the Modern Intimacy Podcast, a show about mental health, sex, relationships, education, how-tos, and those private things we need to talk about more publicly with no restrictions. I'm your host, Dr. Kate Balistrieri. As a licensed psychologist, certified sex therapist, and certified sex addiction therapist, I know that mental health is directly tied to the quality of our relationships and our sex lives. I am passionate in my desire to smash stigmas about both and shine a light on relationship and societal issues that may be negatively affecting us. During this podcast, I will also give you practical answers and insights to questions you're asking about or have been hoping to solve. We should all have fulfilled, happy lives, erasing shame and stigmas and building healthy connections. Let's do that by getting curious together. Thanks for joining me. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining me this week on the Modern Intimacy Podcast. I'm really excited today because we're going to address slut shaming and specifically how to stop slut shaming yourself. So I'm really excited that Raquel Savage is here with me to talk about this issue. Raquel is a therapist, a sex worker, and a proud slut. Raquel, thanks so much for joining me today. You are so welcome. I'm happy to be here. So let's start with defining slut shaming. What is it? What does it sound like in our minds? Yeah. So slut shaming is a a symptom of patriarchy and misogyny, essentially. Mm -hmm. And it is all of the many ways that small and large versions of that show up in our day-to-day life. And so kind of like you talked about, there is and can be this distinction between external things and our negative self-talk. So this can look like externally people victim blaming right mm-hmm. um if someone is experiencing assault or cat calling saying oh well it's because of what you're wearing or oh it's because of what you look like or oh it's because of how your your body looks right there's so many conversations on tiktok about like i think there's even a sound and it's like am i showing my boobs or do i just have big boobs <laughs> and <Right>? exist yes <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> so it's like sometimes just how your body is looking and instead mm-hmm. of functioning from the perspective that all humans are deserving of safety and autonomy and well-being. It's saying, "Mm, well, because you exist in this particular body, because you are wearing these particular clothes, I now have the the right, the entitlement to you. Um, Mm -hmm. So it can look like that. It can also look like the way that we engage and sexualize people broadly and starting with kids. And we see this like offshoots of this when we see kind of conversations around like small, I've seen like small boys and it's like, oh, he's going to be a a lady killer. Mm -hmm. Or um, I have like a thousand TikToks in my brain. (laughs) uh, One of a kindergarten teacher who said she saw Mm -hmm. some kid do something with like a rubber band around her, their wrists. And in her mind, she thought of like kinky something for some reason like that's a kindergartner like why are we going there right so it's like it can be those external kinds of things and a ton of other things Mm -hmm. and also it can be yeah our negative self-talk and these are the the ways that we have internalized misogyny patriarchy sexism and slut shaming and we say to ourselves well I don't want to do A, B, and C behavior because I don't want to come off this way. Or I have done A, B, and C behavior, so that makes me less than or not good enough. Um, It can be buying into the 
what is the the metaphor the key in the lock um oh gosh or the, mm-hmm. you know i have you know trying to minimize your sexual partners or your bodies in order to be able to construct your value in a certain way right. um, so it can show up in so many ways. And I think one of the other things that I have to mention whenever we talk about slut shaming is that not only is there this umbrella, of course, of patriarchy, misogyny, there's also this very specific um, system of oppression, whorephobia, which Mm -hmm. is the hatred, disgust, revulsion, repulsion, um, criminalization of sex workers. And that is very much at the root of a lot of slut shaming is Mm. don't be a whore. And when people say don't be a whore, they don't just mean don't be slutty. That quite literally is pulling from literal sex workers. Don't sell your body. Don't be this kind of person. I mean, sex workers throughout history and still have been criminalized for their existence Mm -hmm. and have been considered a public nuisance, can't exist in public. So I said a lot of things, but mostly <laughs> it's the many, many ways that patriarchy, misogyny, and whorephobia show up in our day-to-day life, both externally and internally. Right. And what I really hear you saying, if I pull a theme through all of that, is this incredibly unfair double standard about the sexuality of people in feminine presenting bodies um, where they're not supposed to be sexual and enjoy it for themselves or claim it with their own power. And because they, they do consciously or unconsciously, then there's something that changes in their worth or in their, in the, in people's perception of their worth. And that's where the misogyny and the sexism and the patriarchal ideologies really taint our vision of pleasure. Absolutely. Yes. There's a big piece of it that is around autonomy mm-hmm. and non-men's um desire to and entitlement to autonomy while particularly cis het men um believe and function from the perspective of and have built the world around um <laughs> that women and non-men don't actually have autonomy and agency over their bodies and mm-hmm. are the property of cis het men in some capacity. And I think when people hear that they think to like historical context in which it was like, oh, I own my daughter and now I'm giving my daughter away. And and it's like, they just think of history when Mm -hmm. possessiveness in relationships is still um, an offshoot of that ownership. Um, Dads, I had a former friend who had a daughter and daughter was like fresh out the vagina. And he literally bought a t-shirt that said something like, like, I have a daughter, but I also have a shotgun. Mm-hmm. And it's like you don't even your baby is fresh out the the, the uterus, and the first right. thing you thought to do was to reinstill your ownership over her, mm-hmm. and, and specifically she, her sexuality. Correct, and she's not even at a point where she's prepubescent. She's in she's a newborn, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's and it's, so it's things like that too, which are entirely trivialized like that scene is a joke there's t-shirts like that we see mm-hmm. not t-shirts like that but kind of similar things like in target or wherever or it's just like easily accessible and considered a joke and funny and and a source of pride for many dads correct yeah absolutely yes and this is also in part and and we see this not only with dads mm-hmm. i also want to make sure that i say that women and people who are not men also perpetuate and uphold these really rigid paradigms and ideals 
in yes. their family as well. So it's not only that they have internalized it for themselves in the way that they view themselves. It is also, you are my daughter and you are to behave in this particular way, because if you don't, then you are a slut, or if you don't, then you are this. So right. even though it, it, it's like very nuanced, right? Because in some capacity, it absolutely works against a mother's, for instance, mm-hmm. a mother's favor to, in, to slut shame their child. It also, and not, but it also, creates and and instills a hierarchy of power because the mom is buying into it and because mm-hmm. there is then proximity to patriarchy and misogyny there is a slight bit of power this is not full-blown right but it's right. like because it's conditional exactly yeah. yeah let's talk a little bit about when slut shaming starts and I know you've addressed this a little bit I remember growing up as an elementary school aged child, hearing many mothers of my friends talking about the behaviors of my peers and calling them sluts without any reservation at all, without any thought to how that might impact all of us in our burgeoning sexuality. And I wonder in your experience with slut shaming, what's typical when do people start becoming indoctrinated into this shaming messaging? Immediately. I mean, and I would even say before birth, right? Mm-hmm. Because if we, these, this is a, this is a system, right? So these mm-hmm. are well-developed historical systems that are in place and inform everything that we do and believe. Mm-hmm. And of course there are some folks who are having conversations like this that are attempting to disrupt it the large majority of people are continuing to buy into it. So it is, it's, it's ever present. It's always Mm -hmm. existing. It's, it's not even like a, at what age does it start? It's when is it, when when does it not exist, which is never. (laughs) Such a good (laughs) point. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, and, and again, I, I feel that we see this for sure. Like in in tangible examples is when people are pregnant or Mm -hmm. are, I've just found out they're pregnant or about to have a baby and the jokes and the things that they're saying are pointing towards some kind of slut shaming, weird victim blaming, sexualizing kind of stuff. And it's right. like the baby's still in the womb. How, we, <laughs> how did we get here? Um, yeah. So definitely. And it, I have, I also see this with parents who are navigating the the baby and, and toddler kind of years with their kids and they're finding their kids touching themselves mm-hmm. and having no, I mean, prior to that moment, they had no time or, or no one even talking to them about A, that you're entitled to your own body. Your body is yours. Mm-hmm. Your body is to do whatever you want with. Your body is to hold you and keep you safe, and is also to give you pleasure and comfort. Um, and to talk about how sh- it's not shameful to do A, B, and C. And here's how we can do it uh, in an appropriate way so that there's privacy and safety. And and so they go straight into it's nasty. It's disgusting. And mm-hmm. I don't want my daughter to be fast or if it's a boys, well, boys will be boys. Oh, he's touching right. penis, you know, like, so we see that very, very young, particularly mm-hmm. with parents. 
It's so true. Even in the way that children play with their toys, right? There's emphasis on don't let the Barbies or don't let your dolls do that. That's not what good girls do, or that's not, there's just so much conditioning that starts at an early age around the restrictiveness of pleasure and bodily exploration and play, which are all, by the way, very healthy, normal things for all children to go through. Yeah. Interestingly, I was reading an article a little while ago about how for so many father-daughter relationships, when the daughter is young, she's really close to dad. But when she starts to mature and go through puberty and reaches you know, a stage where her body begins to change and show secondary sex characteristics, she receives a bit of a rejection and a disgust response from dad in many father-daughter dynamics. And what the article was saying is that Fathers have such a hard time sometimes really making sense of their daughter's sexuality and the fact that it doesn't belong to them and can't or won't. And so they experience a bit of rejection or uh, a shot to their sense of power and control. I wonder what are your experiences with that dynamic? Yeah, well, it's really interesting because things like that are what remind us that men, as a result of patriarchy, do not see women at any age as humans. Mm -hmm. Because if the only way that you can humanize me is when I'm desexualized in your mind means that your respect for me is conditional. You don't actually see me as a human. You don't respect me as a human. You don't respect my autonomy. You can only respect it when you have some faux sense of power over me, then you actually don't respect me. And it's a hard thing to swallow because we all want to believe that our dads are wonderful and like (laughs) whatever different, well, not me. I don't feel that way about my dad, but I know that there are some folks when we say like, uh, all men are bad. They're like, oh, even your dad. I'm like, even your dad, your dad is not an exception to the patriarchal and misogynistic, um, beliefs and rhetoric. And, and, they are receiver, they are beneficiaries. They're mm-hmm. they're not just they hold these beliefs and it's just random beliefs. They are literal, literally benefiting from the patriarchal and misogynistic beliefs that are in our culture. So it's a really hard thing to have that particular kind of discussion with people because yeah, it's a reminder that men, cishead men, mm-hmm. are unable to see women as whole humans because mm-hmm. whole humans includes that your daughter is now at an age where she's going to be doing i don't know dating or masturbating mm-hmm. more often or watching porn or whatever the case may be right like mm-hmm. and at, at that point you still cannot respect her and see her as a human you don't respect her at all it cannot be conditional it's not this or that exactly that's so perfectly stated and i think so many men are unconscious to that i don't know that they wake up saying, I'd like to be a father who objectifies my daughter and doesn't really see her as a whole human being. But these are some of the scripts that cishet men inherit through the intergenerational conditioning of their own masculinity and what it means to hold some sort of power attached to gender. So I I really feel for a lot of dads who are like, that's not me, that's not me. But until you've begun to really deconstruct the ways in which misogyny has taken place in your own uh, identity construction, it, it's impossible to avoid some residual effects of the the misogyny that just proliferates our world, influencing yeah. the way you interact with your child. Yeah. And it's, it's on one hand, 
on one hand, it is true that folks are not explicitly thinking to themselves, like, I want to be racist or I want to be right. And then on the other hand, I always challenge and argue folks do know that these systems exist Mm -hmm. and benefit them and allow them to wield power. So Mm -hmm. it's like, no, I don't believe that all dads, some dads certainly are just horrific. Yes. (laughs) Um, But maybe the large majority, I don't believe that they say to themselves like explicitly, you know, I'm going to do this or believe this about my child. They do have this distinction between how Mm. they show up and treat women, regardless of who their relationship to them versus how they treat other cishet men. And that could be an opportunity for reflection, an opportunity Mm -hmm. for uh, awareness building. It is simply that 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 moment that catalyst doesn't happen because there is little incentive to seeing women as human including your wife including your daughter including your mm-hmm. mom there's mm-hmm. little incentive there so it's like for us for for any of us who occupy any kind of marginalized identity there's incentive because we're trying to make sense of our world we're right. trying to make sense of what the hell is happening around me why am i being treated this way or what makes me feel full of pride or what about this identity makes me feel connected to other people whatever that's not the same for cishet men. There is mm-hmm. no, what is the incentive? I mean, we could argue that the incentive, when I, I see people do this, say like patriarchy hurts men as well. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah. they would benefit from unpacking patriarchy and blah, 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 blah. And that sounds really good. Realistically, I don't think that that's really necessarily true. They have a pretty sweet deal. They have a pretty sweet deal from their perspective, which is mm-hmm. they're allowed to behave in any way that, they want Suits them with impunity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, they're able to wield power in any manner that manner that they want with impunity. They're allowed to get away. I mean, there's so many, there's so many benefits. So mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, it, it is. A, it really with any marginalized folks and with, or, or rather with anyone who occupies privileged identities, it really is this active and mm-hmm. explicit choice to learn about unpack disrupt make amends for Mm -hmm. the benefits and and harm and all of the things that come with your privileged identity and then doing that forever like it's not a I'm gonna I learn about it for six months no yeah no you die (laughs) you don't go to a workshop and then you're done right Right. it's it is an ongoing ongoing process and I, I agree with you there aren't a lot of obvious benefits to cishet men to do this work until they start to value some of the other things that folks in the marginalized groups value, like connection over power and communication and the capacity to have a whole human experience, including an emotional um, awareness, intelligence, and expression, right? And when those things start to become more valued by cishet men, I think they might see more motivation. Um, And even worst case scenario, if they're tired of being the providers because it's so hard to be the only person making the money, well, (laughs) come to the liberated side and maybe you'll get some of the other benefits that come with sharing that responsibility. Yeah, I have seen a lot of conversations um, about how men are, cishet men are like sexually attracted to women, but emotionally Mm. attracted to other men. And I find that conversation so interesting because I feel that it is positioned incorrectly in that men aren't 
men aren't emotionally connected or or more attracted or more interested or invested in other men. They have a shared bond and allegiance over patriarchy and the benefits that it has for them. Mm-hmm. So it's not like men are disrespect that men are disrespectful to women because they prefer the company of men emotionally. It's literally because there is this united allegiance to this mm-hmm. system of power. And you're absolutely right. It actually could shift into that their capacity for being emotionally intelligent and and invested in and community and connectedness, if they begin to value that at all, it's mm-hmm. it's really hard for that process to happen because that is one that has to be sincere from them. Right. Right. They have to feel the sting of not being connected to those parts of themselves. And to be fair, some do, right? And some are working on on shifting within themselves and within their immediate circles. But the majority are still pretty unconscious about that or conscious and motivated for things to stay the same. Very much so. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about purity culture and the myth of virginity and how this can play a role in slut shaming because it is big. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, purity culture largely is essentially a, a system that is informed by mm-hmm. Christianity and, and Christian values that frame what sex and sexuality and autonomy and ownership ought to be. And the idea or the social construct of virginity is very, very largely informed by Christianity and the Christian concept of man and woman and that being the right way, the righteous way, the only way Mm -hmm. that two people can have sex. And so that then informs how we all understand virginity to Mm -hmm. be, which is having never had PIV, right, sex, mm-hmm. and now having it. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting because I, I see, as a queer person, even I, earlier in my life, talked about my virginity in that way, mm-hmm. although it is not reflective of the many sexual experiences that I've had for the first time. Mm-hmm. And so what I like to ask folks is not so much about PIV specifically. Mm-hmm. It's it, rather just shifting it into first time experiences of any kind, mm-hmm. um, because obviously centering it around um, cishet men and cishet women decreases and limits what first time can look like. And we know that there are lots of folks who don't have sex that way, um, who have first time experiences Mm -hmm. and are, um, I think another way that I have seen it framed is sexual debuts as opposed Mm -hmm. to virginity, which Mm -hmm. I love that because that sounds like a show. It sounds like a (laughs) a starring on Broadway kind of a thing. Yes. Um, And I think the other big problem that I see about just the concept of virginity beyond it being a place to slut shame people is also Mm -hmm. that it sets up from the very, very beginning that the real and only kind of sex is penetrative sex. And we know that cishet women in particular do not often achieve orgasm through that kind of sex. So it sets up cishet women from the very beginning to buy into this lifelong relationship to sex that doesn't even center them. 
um, because it's not considered sex if it's just dry humping or it's not considered sex if it's just eating pussy or it's not considered sex if it's, you know, so Mm -hmm. there's like so many issues with the, the social construct that is virginity, but being able to shift that into, and of course it applies the, the way that we talk about virginity is so stigmatized when we talk about mm-hmm. cis women versus cis men. Of course, for cis men, it's like a celebration. And it's, oh, it's so exciting. And mm-hmm. for, for women, even though I'd say how we talk about it could be a celebration, largely it's like, oh, you are now damaged goods. Mm. Um, you are now used. You are now, you've been, you know, it's like you've been tainted in some yeah. capacity. Which isn't true at all. I mean, it, it, it the language around virginity for me has always been so curious because, to your point, it this limitation of creating a definition of sex that is penis in vagina penetration. This P and V is so limiting, and it does set up a situation where cishet women are, you know, just not going to be the priority for pleasure at all, and. The other thing that that implicitly says is my body exists for you, right? And so this idea of virginity, in my opinion, is also really rooted in a commitment to the power structures at play that, yeah, that send a message to men that women are in servitude of men through either being sexual and providing their bodies for sexual pleasure or by being uh, by refraining from sex and then providing access to this idea of good enough or social power currency redemption, right? Women who are, vir- you know, virgins in big air quotes um, in this model, this purity culture model are often seen to be, you know, a man's sort of gateway into his own path of spiritual holiness. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and I think another thing about the entire concept is that it it then creates so much pressure for what the experience will look like. Mm-hmm. And I'd say if we lined up 10 cishet women and asked them about the first time that they had PIV sex, the majority of them would say it was not at all what I thought it was going to be. Or it Absolutely. wasn't like the movies. The movie said it was going to be this. or mm-hmm. And so it also sets up for your first time to be a a letdown. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, there is just, as opposed to, again, approaching your sexual debut of any kind as something that is fun and Mm -hmm. centered around your pleasure and centered around your autonomy and with someone that you think is fun or trust or want to have a good time and it being exploratory rather than we're going to do this one activity. And it's, this is, you know, it's so it's because the first time that I had or attempted to have PIV sex, it didn't even work because Mm -hmm. I was not aroused at Mm -hmm. all. There was no way that I could accommodate this person. And so then that became a whole devaluing of me is, oh, well, you can't even, you can't even, you can't Mm -hmm. even like, oh, I guess (laughs) really, I like, I I knew based on social Mm -hmm. concept that once I had sex, PIV sex that I would be less than. And now I can't even do the thing that makes me less than. It was like such a mind fuck. Yeah. Um, and again, had someone talked to me, had someone talked to my mm-hmm. partner at the time and said, 
you all can do all kinds of things. Doesn't mm-hmm. even have to be centered around that. Um, it like my initial like entry experience would have been, and again, it wasn't even my entry experience because I was doing lots of stuff before that. But it was right. framed as this mm-hmm. is the this yeah. is the moment, right? Yeah, like the big holy grail experience. <laughs> yeah, which <laughs> couldn't be further from the truth. Um, well, let's get back to sort of the relationship between mothers and daughters or, you know, the, the experience of internalized misogyny. And I wonder if you can maybe share some of the thoughts or some of the comments that you hear most frequently sticking in the minds of women who experience a lot of slut shaming, either from the other women around them or from themselves. Yeah, definitely. And particularly like in the black community, I hear very frequently that moms have said to people um, like, don't be fast. I don't want you to be fast. Mm. And also more broadly, thinking about what their daughters are wearing around other Mm -hmm. male family members and how Mm -hmm. that has made um, ultimately how now you as an adult think back on that situation and how you should have been protected and whoever the creepy adult was, the creepy uncle or whomever should have left. And yeah, you should have been able to wear whatever shorts you want to wear. Um, So I hear those things the most for sure. And then of course, kind of what we just talked about is because the conversations revolve solely around slut shaming or Mm -hmm. just not talking about things at all, which to me is another version version of Mm -hmm. this kind of offshoot of slut shaming, which is, it just creates shame, secrecy, no conversation is shame. So it's just as bad in some capacity, even though it's not, I mean, I I would even say silence is active, even though it feels like it's not active. Um, Mm -hmm. But even for those people too, it's that they had no preparation, had no idea what to expect. And then they Mm -hmm. had the experience. It wasn't good or even worse, it was bad. And they had no one they could talk to because if they would have gone to their mother, their mother would have been like, "Hmm, well, I told you not to be fast or "Mm, well, if you would have like that kind of thing. So then it becomes an even deeper point of trauma because what we know about trauma is that the event is only one piece of it. The event, you know, we can all experience one event and all of us will respond differently based on our internal coping systems, Mm -hmm. the community we have, what kind of support we have afterwards. So if some daughter had a horrific virginity experience and was able to, or virginity experience, and it was able to go to their mom and say, this really horrible thing happened to me. And the mom was like, wow, I would love to talk about it. Let me hold space for you. What do you need Mm -hmm. right now? How can I help Mm -hmm. you shift that for later experiences? What, you know, whatever, then that allows it not to be this horrific event. But yeah, definitely. I think the themes are around not being a fast, not being fast, not being a slut, um, policing what people wear around Mm -hmm. certain family members or generally, and not having people to talk to when they need to have people to talk Mm -hmm. to. Absolutely. I would add to that. Um, any kind of shaming or disgust response when young girls start to talk about wanting to go to the doctor or getting on birth control or have curiosity about condoms or tampons. I can't tell you how many women I work with who um, have said that their mothers wouldn't let them use tampons because that would change their sexual experience in the world and their value as a human. I mean, it's just, it's amazing how thick this ideology can be and how it can just permeate every experience of growing up with a vulva. Absolutely. And it's, it's heartbreaking because, and, and this is not a requirement of anyone who has been harmed by their mother or parents. 
Um, and if you want to think about this for other people's parents, it's that it, it is heartbreaking on one hand because it is a reminder that no one talked to them either. Like mm-hmm. the reason that someone's mother is slut shaming their kid and is saying to themselves, oh, I can't wear this or I don't want to do this sex act with my husband because maybe is because no one ever talked to her. No one right. ever told her you're entitled to your body or you don't have to have sex with your husband if you don't want to. Like no one mm-hmm. had that conversation with her. And so, again, to, like to circle back to the conversation about uh men actively thinking about patriarchy versus not this is not to excuse any moms right Mm -hmm. mothers need to be accountable for the ways that they harm their daughters and enact and uphold any kind of um, system of oppression that becomes Mm -hmm. harmful and or abusive and that is that is a, a reflection of what their values and the values that they have lived their life by that have been harmful to them too. So it's like, it's, it's a, it's a nuanced thing. And this is why I say, you don't have to think about this for your own mom, because no, if my mom called me a slut, I'm not going to be like, Oh, I, it sucks because someone must have called her a slut. No, fuck that. But, and um, these are, these are traditions, you know, and I think something that I do think about for my like lineage is, and you know, it's so interesting because our this current generation is like the first generation of parents who are actually like treating kids like humans. I know. Um, like the fact that we have uh, gentle parenting is just so fascinating. <laughs> um, and it's also receiving so much backlash because people want to continue yes. to treat kids like property. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think about it that way of, of generationally, like what was happening generation to generation and what was allowed and what was not allowed and what did women in my lineage have to tolerate and experience Mm -hmm. and endure in order for me to be here. And so that's the way that I have attempted to generate empathy for the harm that I have experienced Mm -hmm. is thinking like, I get to be on a podcast talking about being a slut. I get to be Mm -hmm. a sex worker of 10 years where I do whatever I want for money. Like, and Mm -hmm. I don't feel any shame about that. Like I live on my own and I make money like, you know, so it's again, folks are in, in, in no way required to generate any kind of forgiveness or empathy if they choose not to. Mm-hmm. And it is interesting to think about the different things that women throughout history have yeah. done their best or attempted to generate some kind of power, even if that means perpetuating really, really ugly and toxic shit. Yeah, it's it is really sort of a bitter pill to swallow sometimes for folks who are trying to process that grief and negotiate how they feel about their own mothers, their own parents. Um, but definitely thinking more about the bigger picture and what intergenerationally has transpired and the desperation with which some women will cling to this ideology because it is their only sense of power their to identity. Stay- yeah. And, and that is by design within a patriarchy. Absolutely. You have no identity other than the one I've given you. And it's to be this narrow and you're not to step out of it is what the patriarchy tells us. So it, I have a tremendous amount of compassion for women who are really still in that space and they've got more deconstructing to do. And at the same time, to echo what you said, it does not absolve mothers of, or any parents of, the ways in which they may harm their their children and in, in passing along the scripts that were given to them. So if there are any parents listening 
I'd really encourage you to try not to personalize this message and sit with a tremendous amount of shame. And if it feels right for you and necessary in healing the relationship that you have with your children, taking accountability for the ways in which your safety strategies hurt your kids can be the first step into having a really soulful connection with them again. For people who really want to get started in challenging that internal voice of slut-shaming, what are a few tips that you might recommend as they grapple with, well, how do I, how do, I do this work? Yeah, I really think that a great place to start is trying to learn about these systems. Like before you try to do any like activities or this and that, you know, mm-hmm. just try to learn what is patriarchy, what is misogyny, what is whorephobia, what is purity culture, what is slut shaming, what is rape culture, what are all of these things? And then more broadly, like what is colonialism, what is white supremacy, what is capitalism, all of these systems of oppression, learning about what they are to the best of your capacity Mm -hmm. is the framework for being able to understand how those things show up um, on a on large scale in terms of legislation and, and institutions, being mm-hmm. able to see how it shows up it locally in your area, how it shows up communally in your family, how it shows up interpersonally in your relationship, how it shows up individually within your own self-talk. I don't think it's, it's, I don't, I don't want to say it's impossible, but it's really difficult to begin that kind of work without that foundation. So mm-hmm. I would say to start there and it, and it really, there are, on one hand, I don't want to say just Google it because Google has really terrible information. <laughs> yes. um, but there are lots of folks who are doing really great work on unpacking some of these things. Um, and and also, and actually, let me say this. It's okay to Google it because part of what your learning process is, is discernment, mm-hmm. is trying to figure out what information is, re- uh, uh, what's the word, not ethical, but like credible. Credible. And, and what, re- yeah, information isn't. So so doing that research, I think, is a really important, like at least minimum step. Mm-hmm. And also I think is low risk because it doesn't ask you to do any self-reflection yet. It's literally just like, oh, read this thing, you know, <laughs> and you can do a see what comes up for you as you read it, because it's mm-hmm. good to maybe make a note of that. Then just noticing again, not attempting to make any shifts, but noticing when you see those things play out in all levels around you. Mm-hmm. Notice when there is legislation around you that is passed that you know directly impacts women or sex workers or queer and trans people or disabled people. Notice in your local community how folks treat each other and where you see th- these things maybe happening, family, interpersonal relationships, then yourself. Just mm-hmm. noticing um, if you want to write the things down, if you want to reflect on them every Friday, you know, that's fine. But just noticing because that begins to raise your awareness to just how frequent and like all around you all the time, mm-hmm. all of these things are all the time. It's so pervasive. Yeah. And once you start seeing it, you can't unsee it. You can. And maybe that's <laughs> a preface, honestly. Yeah. Something that I say to therapy clients when we first start is, does this feel like a good time to do trauma work? Because it's not always the right time. Because right. once you begin to unpack these and open these suitcases, you can't close <laughs> them back. You can't unsee it. So yeah. You're exactly right. And that is something to consider before you start any of this is, mm-hmm. yeah, if you're, if you're not, because it's not always the right time to like do the whole thing. 
If you're in a sweet spot, if you're needing to pay attention at work, if you're needing to, you know, whatever, don't disrupt the things. It's fine. And if you have capacity and yeah, you feel ready to, to be enraged. (laughs) Um, Yes. Yeah. Doing some reading, doing some noticing and observing. Mm -hmm. And then I'd say the third thing is beginning to try to make some shifts. And those can start with uh, you internally, your, your self-talk, um, things you talk about with your therapist to be able mm-hmm. to help process whatever the trauma is that you have. And then starting with interpersonally in your relationships too. And that can look like pointing things out to folks you feel safe with setting boundaries with folks you feel, you know, uh, I heard you just say, I'm actually not comfortable with that kind of language or, mm-hmm. you know, what, when you speak like that about women, I'm going to go ahead and leave the room. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, I make the distinction there with boundaries that are, I prefer folks set boundaries that are for themselves rather than mm-hmm. for other people. It's difficult, I think, to uphold boundaries for others because we don't have control over that. You can mm-hmm. always attempt to set boundaries for yourself. I'm not going to tolerate this. I will not be listening to this. I'm not okay mm-hmm. with this. Yes. Um, so starting then with, yeah, the action piece. And it can be slow, baby steps. Like. Mm-hmm do your best. <laughs> I really appreciate what you're saying about how enraging it is too, because I think, it, I think it was Gloria Steinem who said the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. And that is this work. It is so enraging. Yes. And then there's profound grief and yes. then there's liberation and action. And I think those are not always, um, linear steps. They can happen at the same time. You can go back and forth every time you learn about a new dimension of this. It can set you off again, even if you've been in the boundary setting space. But it's so important to honor that process within because it is really hard to start facing the realities um, about how pervasively, how directly, and how offensively pleasure for vulva owners has been suppressed for so long and the sacrifices that not only have been expected, but demanded of women when it comes to, or or anyone who is a non-cishet man, when it comes to, you know, being in service of everyone uh, of them. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I was just going to say, and, and with that said, it is really important to attempt to, or begin to, or continue to build up your coping mechanisms so that you have things that you can access to make you feel grounded, mm-hmm. to reaffirm your personhood and autonomy, to make sure that you are connecting with folks. Um, so having, making sure that you have outlets for rage, really important. Uh, rage, as I observe it in clients is typically a very physical visceral thing Mm -hmm. it's not really something that you can just like write a letter and you can feel better about typically it's something you have to physically you shake it out or you run or you go to a rage room and you break a glass or you (laughs) buy a cheap plate from the dollar store and throw Mm -hmm. it against the asphalt I mean it's like Mm -hmm. physical so figuring out ways to honor your rage that are 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 actually aligned in line with how you experience rage physically, Mm -hmm. um, being able to attend to the grief, Mm. allowing yourself to feel the sadness, not avoiding it, not saying, oh, well, you know, like really letting it wash over you, responding how you need to, and having all of your yummy connection stuff, whether that's like having nice sensory stuff, eating a chocolate and it's divine and delicious and this, or taking Mm -hmm. a bath and your skin feels this or co-regulating with someone sitting with Mm -hmm. them, reading them, hugging them, having your, your coping stuff is, I mean, good to have generally. And when you begin this kind of process, yeah, you have, 
you'll have to, you'll have to cope in some way. And <laughs> yeah. It'll either. And, and I also am someone who is supportive of folks, especially women and queer folks, um, re reclaiming their, their rage and their mm-hmm. bitterness and their fishiness yes. and their meanness and their ugliness, mm-hmm. ugliness and their feralness. I love the word. Feral. Love it. Yes. Um, because so often, and, and when we when people look into all of this, they realize this is part of it. But so often, it's like we're told to just be be silent, be quiet, mm-hmm. take up less mm-hmm. less space, be nice, be polite. And it's like you know what? The next time you're walking down the street, if you feel safe enough to do this, and someone cat calls you, scream at them. Mm-hmm. Literally, like I mean, blood <laughs> curling. If you feel safe, if you don't feel safe, don't do it. If you life. feel safe, right? Yeah. Tap into that that mm-hmm. that just that feral rage That's um, right. because you're entitled to it. You deserve mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And it's an important part of you. And one that likely has been very ignored and yes. very repressed. Um, so absolutely. Yeah. I love, Let- I love a good rage room visit. <laughs> That's what I do to honor my rage because mm-hmm. I'm a thrower and it's like a smasher. Mm. If I do that in my home, my home will be ruined. <laughs> yeah. So I go to a rage room where I literally, you can just like rent the space mm. and they provide you like glasses and keyboards and then they give you hammers and all kinds of tools and you mm-hmm. just, you just go. They're in fun. There. Yeah. They are, they are cathartic to go to those rage rooms. Yeah, they are. Other ways you can do it if that's not your jam um, can include things like dancing, um, working out, really moving your body in any way that allows whatever energy from the rage is stored in your body, a vehicle out, right? So movement is the key of some sort and whatever feels aligned with what works for you, but don't be afraid to rock that resting bitch face And don't be afraid to let yourself know that you're angry or let other people know that you're angry and you don't owe anyone an explanation, right? And I think so often when when people start to do this work, they feel the need to apologize for it. Mm -hmm. And I say no more of that. Yes, 100%. (laughs) Well, thank you, Raquel. This has been such an amazing conversation. I'm so grateful to you for being on the podcast Where can people reach you if they want to work with you or learn more about all of the amazing things that you're doing right now? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation. Folks can reach out through my website, RaquelSavage.com. That's R-A-Q-U-E-L, Savage.com. And yeah, I see clients one-on-one for therapy. I do any kind of speaking stuff. Um, I also do just consultation. I know sometimes folks just want to like vent and get Mm -hmm. feedback and not in the way that it would exist in therapy since therapy is like, I'm not going to give you advice. Um, (laughs) But in a consultation kind of thing, I can totally Mm -hmm. be like, you know what, this is what I think. Um, So yeah, that's the best way to, to reach me. And for everyone listening, yeah, I hope that you're able to access and, and feel really powerful and divine in your sluttiness and Mm. in your sexuality and, and be able to create new experiences that center and affirm all of the past times when you were denied that and allow you to create new practices to really cultivate the pleasure that you deserve. So well said. Thank you again, Raquel. Mm -hmm. Thanks, everyone. Uh, Stay tuned next week for another episode of Modern Intimacy. Until then, stay curious. See you then. 
Thank you for listening to the Modern Intimacy Podcast. On Instagram, follow me at Dr. Kate Balistrieri and at The Modern Intimacy. On TikTok, check me out at Dr. Kate Balistrieri and on Twitter at Kate Balistrieri. Everyone has questions about mental health, sex, and relationships. Send yours to me via DM on Instagram or email them to questions at modernintimacy.com and I'll answer some at the end of each episode. Visit the website modernintimacy.com to schedule a consultation with a member of our team or to sign up for our newsletter. Let's meet back here next week. New episodes air every Tuesday. Reminder, this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for mental health services. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.